ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Hey guys, thanks for joining Western Contours as we bring you Elk Holland Academy's Feature Friday. This week, Michael talks about the five most important things a first-year archery elk hunter must know. Enjoy the episode. Hello everybody, my name is Michael Batiste from the Elk Calling Academy and this is Wapiti Wednesday Q&A. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're glad you joined us. Uh, also, if... Um, this is your first time or you've tuned in before and you're enjoying the content, make sure that you like, subscribe, or follow so that you don't miss out on future content and future videos. So, okay, the way Wapiti Wednesday works is we typically start with a subject. So, um, you know, I kind of threw out a post earlier today. Somebody, you know, a few people threw some questions in that they wanted to cover. And we start with that, but as always, it doesn't matter which platform you're on, feel free to go ahead and put your questions in, and we will try to answer those as we roll along. There is some information that kind of, um, you know, hold back a little bit because we do have paid members in private one-on-one lessons and also on the uh, elkcallingacademy.com. So... All right. Uh, Facebook trying to silence the academy. I like it. So all platforms were were reporting issues today. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cyber attack. But okay. So let's jump into some of these questions. Um, I'm going to save the one uh, from Instagram that was kind of pertinent because it's it's going to tie in with um, the other main question. So uh, Stephen Elliott said, basically, uh, me and my ever famous hunting partner, Dave West, think we may have been scouting too high out here on the coast. How high is too high? Does elevation preference vary for elk based off of location in relevance to sea level and distance to the ocean? So really, I, I, I mean, that the elevation is going to vary 
from area to area to where you're at. They just, you know, like some areas that I hunt, I, I find elk from 7,600 feet on up to, uh, you know, 85, 86. That's kind of that magical ribbon that I find them in in some areas. Other areas, it might be 3,500 feet. It's basically, if you have an area that you found on the map, and I know uh, David sent me a, a message about this. And so if you basically find an area that you like, when you get boots on the ground, the best thing to do is hit all elevations of, of that. Go high on the mountain, hit mid-mountain, and hit low on the mountain. Looking for that old rutting sign that we talked about, you know, the old rubs, the old wallows. And that's going to kind of tell you in that area where that magical band is. And that band, like I said, is going to vary from area to area to area. There's not really anything that I can sit there and say, you need to be at this certain elevation to really, you know, find elk in every state in every area that elk live. It just, it, they just vary because there's certain things in certain pockets that they like and they hang at those elevations. So biggest piece of advice, Stephen and Dave, that I can give you guys is if you were up that high and you didn't even see any old rutting sign or rutting activity, you know, didn't find any of that old rutting sign, then start working your way down the mountain. And up that high, a lot of times, um, you know, you can find that that's that summer range and you may find bulls up there, but you want to find those old rubs and wallows because that's where they're going to be when the rut comes around. So, um, or are we needing to look at relative elevations com uh, compared to surrounding area? Yeah, Dave, you're exactly right. Just, just start checking different elevations and, and really making a mental note. This is where Onyx or Basemap or Outly, you know, any of those programs on your phone is going to be really nice because when you get into that magic mark, when you get into that magic band, you can start dropping pins of that old running sign. Uh, you know, those rubs and wallows just start dropping pins and waypoints because that's those are areas you're going to want to go back to in September. So uh, Big Herd Bull, where are you from? I am from Boise, Idaho. So. All right. Um, so this this one right here ties in with the Instagram question. So the Instagram question is, I'm going on my first elk hunt this October with an outfitter. What advice do you have for first time elk hunter? Not a novice hunter, but my first elk hunt. So, Judy, really, the fact that you're going with an outfitter um, and, and hopefully did research and there's there's good feedback on that outfitter because if you're going with a credible outfitter they know their area they've done, they've been doing the scouting because you, you know that's their livelihood is to put you on animals so advice i can give you is trust in what your outfitter and guide are telling you but also don't be afraid to ask questions so, and ask the questions in a way that it doesn't come off as argumentative or, you know, make them more inquisitive. You know, if he's like, okay, you know, if they're like, okay, we're going to go over here and we're going to do this. So, oh, Judy, yes, he's a good friend also. Okay, so good outfitter and a friend that's a recipe, then basically trust 
what he's doing. But but at the same time, too, it's a great opportunity to ask those questions. You know, why are we going over there? Why are we doing this? It's it's that inquisitive where, you know, you just you, you want to know more. You know, why are we doing this? You know, is it because the elk are doing this or they're doing that or what? And, and what it does is. It puts your trust in him because you could tell if they're knowledgeable back. And also, um, it, it, it's it's just another opportunity for you to learn. So, but yeah, biggest piece of advice I can give is trust, trust them. So, um, <laughs> uh, private land tactics. Some of us don't hunt public land all the time. Hmm. <laughs> you know, when I read that today, some of us don't hunt public land all the time. Um, lucky for you. So really, as far as the private land tactics go, um, it, it really doesn't change. You're, you're still going to do your same setups. You're still going to do the same. The only thing is, is the elk on private land typically aren't as pressured um, so you can get away with a few more mistakes where maybe on, on public land, you've got to be dialed in on, on top of the, on, on top of your game. Um, but as far as the tactics go, they're still going to be the same, you know, early, early season pre-rut, you know, especially start of the season, you're, you're going to look for those cooler damp draws, you know, where those elk are hanging out, um, you know, and then as the season progresses, um, you know, you're going to go more to those, you know, rutting zones, um, so you'll go from the cool, damp draws down to where the cows are and then into the rutting areas. But as far as calling tactics and setups and this and that, nothing really changes. The only thing that may the only thing that will change is when you hear a bugle on that private, you're not going to be sitting there going, hmm, person, elk, elk, person. So because the fact that you are on private, there's a really higher percentage chance that, yeah, that is an elk. So now you will still have guys that will work the perimeter of those privates trying to pull those bulls off. And you may encounter you may hear one of those and that may kind of uh, get into your head a little bit. But no, tactics and all that just stay exactly the same like we've talked about, you know, in the past. So uh, do elk bugle in November during the late archery season? They can, um, but, you know, really November time, if it's a normal rut year where that rut happened around the autumn equinox and then, you know, kind of some post-rut activity through October, by by the time November comes, I mean, they're so worn out and tired and have lost so much weight that, you know, their main focus at that point is really put, packing on the fat, getting ready for winter and, and whatnot. So, um, if you do hear any bugling, it's probably going to be more location type bugles. Um, but it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to go out and bugle aggressively and get into uh, a rut fest with a bull unless it's an odd year like last year where the rut happened really, really late. In fact, the, a lot of areas, the peak rut activity didn't even seem to happen until October. So if the peak rut happens that late, then... Yeah, you you could get some in November, but majority of the time, normal years, not a lot. So, okay. So, we're going to talk about this real quick. 
so you guys have heard me talk about ready nutrients you know there's other options out there warrior fuel is another one that uh you know i i do use and and really both great products but they both come in tubs with scoops so and i get asked a lot out in the field how do i go from those tubs with the scoops to bottle so this is the interfuse workout funnel um, it's just two different lids that you can screw off so you can you know take the big one off you can drop your powder in here two scoops or whatever and then um, you know the thing I like about these is they come with one carabiner they come in a four pack one carabiner you can get a couple more but the cool thing i like about these is you can just clip them on the outside of your pack so you don't have to worry about powder getting on the inside there are you know some companies that um basically have the sticks the the go sticks my experience with a lot of those is you get a lot of powder that leaks out of them. Uh, it doesn't matter. I've tried them from numerous different companies and then that powder ends up getting in your pack and, and this and that. That's why I like these. So um, for those of you on Instagram, if you're interested in checking these out, you can actually, when we're done, go to our Instagram page, click on the link in our bio and then when you're in there just click on daily deal it will take you right to these on um amazon uh youtube you guys they're in the show notes in the description down below and facebook i actually posted it a little bit ago before we started um i really really like those um they're just they're handy they're quick they're nice they're sturdy um and you can use them over and over and over again. They're really easy for getting those uh, branch chain aminos and electrolytes into your water. That's really important uh, when you're out hiking and sweating and and all that. Um, and you don't necessarily have to clip them to the outside of your pack. Sometimes I'll throw them up in the lid of the pack. So, uh, Lena, what's that due to? So the late rut, so the rut will vary based on the upcoming winter you know what the winter is going to be like they are pretty dang good at knowing what the winter is going to do and that's where some research of um you know farmer's almanac you can you can do a google search for um you know like this one 2019 2020 winter predictions you can get an idea of what the winter is going to be and that'll kind of give you an idea of where that rut is going to go but basically the reason that they will adjust that rut so like last year the rut happened really really late well look at what happened in february this year february came along and just got hammered with snow i mean colorado got dumped on idaho we got dumped on and was extremely wet so they will adjust that rut because of the gestational period um of the calves so they want those calves to be born about the time that the snow's coming off and plush grasses are growing and they have that feed but also too is they also want to adjust that to where you know they are 
the last little bit of those calves growing inside, you know, as those calves are growing, that cow needs more and more and more and more nutrients. So that's why in that, you know, February, April, uh, you know, time frame, March time frame, snows kind of start melting. They have the ability to get that grass and get the nutrients to really help those cows or, or calves grow. Now, if the winter gets too bad, that cow will get so stressed that it will actually abort that calf. It's 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 basically it's a life saving on them that they'll abort the calf to save save their own life. So so that's what really caused that late rut this year, Lena. So uh, K. Grant McCowan, also the waste. Yeah. So I uh, can't tell how many of the pouches, tubes I've picked up. So, yeah, like I said, this this Interfuse one has worked really, really well for me. And like I said, it's kind of cool. Uh, four pack. It's, they're normally about $24.99, but I think right now they have them on sale down at $15.99 or $16.99. So um, I kind of keep an eye on them. And then when I see that price come down, that's when I, I tend to kind of jump on them a little bit. Um, two, 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 two. Um, okay, Chris Siemens. Hey, Michael, glad to be here. Been a rough few weeks and hated missing the past few weeks. Welcome back, bud. Uh, Keaton Chancellor, what are your thoughts on a cow party? How long is long enough to stay in that spot? So, um, you know, typically when I'm doing kind of any blind calling routine or this or that, Keaton, I will stay there um, for an hour. Uh, you know, sometimes maybe a little more. Like if it's midday, I might go hour and 15, hour and 20. Um, but typically that hour is the time frame. Um, I've just learned in the past that, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes just isn't enough. It always seems like every time I get up at the 30, 30 minute mark or 45 minute mark and start moving, it's, I don't move very far. And then all of a sudden I bump elk that were coming into me. So, so I will stay in those areas for an hour. So, uh, Josh, prepare to work harder than expected. Lena, got you. Thank you. You bet. So Travis O'Shea, how you doing, bud? So uh, be seeing you next week, brother. Travis, no, I am not calling in the world championships next week. Um, some things have uh, come up and I'm not going to make it next week. So I will not be calling in the world championships. So uh, Chris, always trust the guide and seek knowledge. Absolutely. Josh, ask the landowner where he has them tied up. There you go. There you go. There's there's your private land techniques. So uh, pick up Will Primo's videos for private land info. <laughs> Andrew, I like it. So Mark Anderson, officially a Patreon. Yes, welcome, welcome. Uh, Scott Schmidt, sorry I'm late. You are here. Uh, we buy ZipFizz at Costco. Costco. They are individual serving tubes that have a solid snap lid, so no powder leaks. I re refill the tubes with powders. Yeah, there, there's a lot of different options out there. In fact, I remember taking uh, 35 millimeter film canisters and cutting the lid a little bit, so that way I still had you know a snap lid uh, ability and would carry the powder in there. Um, it just uh, worked for a while, but then I stumbled across these and, and really like those and use them quite a bit. So, okay. So the top five most important things to know as a first year archery elk hunter. So number one is 
the terrain is going to be a way, lot more rugged and steep than what you anticipate. So you you need to know that you're going to be in rugged country. I mean, elk live in rugged country. They are tough and they are going to take you into places that you almost think at times that a human really should not be in there. And if they do get an elk on the ground, that really maybe shouldn't be taking something out of there. I know we've had a few, few packs over the years that uh, we almost called those knife and fork areas that, you know, you go down there, you get a bull on the ground, you might as well just take a knife and fork with you uh, because you're just going to end up eating that animal down there. Um, Another thing that's really, really important to know is really understand thermals, how the thermals work. Uh, because if you really, truly understand the thermals and you really use those thermals as your ally, you're going to be way better off. Um, it's, it's just one of those things that I see so many people will go after elk and they're not even paying attention with thermals and then they can't understand why the elk blew out or why the elk got quiet or this. So thermals is definitely important. Um, also, always have a backup plan. So it doesn't matter how tight you put your plan together, especially if you're hunting public land there are going to be other people that are going to have that tight plan for that area. So always, always be flexible. Always have a backup plan. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's never what you expected. Get in shape. Absolutely. It, um, I hear it from a lot of guys, especially guys that come from east, you know, out, out west to hunt. And, and that's definitely one thing. They're like, wow, that country was a lot bigger than what we anticipated. So uh, number two, listen to Michael Latisse. I like it. Um, so, OK. So also another thing is. Um, do. Research and gather as much information as you can about elk because knowledge is extremely important when you're out there because you're going to recognize, you're going to understand things. Um, without that knowledge and understanding, you're gonna kind of be flying by the seat of your pants. You're not gonna recognize situations. You're not going to understand what's going on. I'm not saying that you can't be successful at all. Uh, it certainly happened. I mean, my very first elk hunt, I didn't have a stinking clue and, you know, just happened to get lucky. Uh, but preparing is is one of those things that uh, can make all the difference when you actually, you know, get out there. Um, the other thing that is also really important is, especially as a first time archery hunter is don't don't focus on harvesting don't focus on punching your tag um enjoy the journey if you put so much pressure on yourself about harvesting or filling that tag or this or that you're going to miss out on so many things about the hunt and 
you're going to miss out on, I, I, I mean, the lessons learned, um, the surroundings. You're going to listen about, you know, you're going to miss out on so many clues of activity, of sounds and body language and this and that, that. So, yeah, you're brand new. You're not going to have all the answers, but also use that first trip also as a learning opportunity. And, and I mean, each time you go out, I, I still to this day, I mean, this is going to be my 31st year and I still learn things every year. Some of the things were things that I knew a while ago and I forgot about or just scrapped it or whatever and then have that lesson come back again. But and, and, and honestly, I'm going to put that one as, as number one because so many guys or so many people nowadays hunt for likes. They hunt for social media likes. They hunt for the admiration of their followers on social media. And I would be really interested to have that opportunity if it was possible, which I know it's not, to sit down with Fred Bear and have Fred Bear be hunting in today's landscape and just see what he thought about all this and how he felt about it. So um, go back and read some of our pioneers. Go back and read some of those early forefathers in, in their little writings and their stories and their journals and their things that they have published and just you are going to be amazed at the passion that these guys had, but also the enjoyment of every time out that they had, but also too, by you taking the time to enjoy your hunt, to enjoy your surroundings you're also going to find yourself that you're staying more mentally alert in the game too, because you're not so, I, I mean, let's, let's be honest. First time hunter, you are flat out going to get kicked in the teeth. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have struggles. You're going to have hard days. You're going to second guess what the heck you're doing. If you're only focusing on this successful notch tag, but if you're enjoying the whole journey about it and using it as a learning experience and taking in everything that's around you, you're going to have one of the greatest trips of your life. So, all right. Um, another important thing is understanding meat care. You know, knowing what to do when that elk is on the ground. Um, I mean, you guys may have heard me on a podcast talk about, um, you know, that first elk that I harvested. Uh, I didn't I didn't have a clue. I actually sat there and once I was done, you know, gutting it out, I grabbed the rack and was just expecting just to drag the thing right back to the truck. I learned really quick that uh, one guy by himself, that ain't going to happen. You're going to have to take that thing and smaller chunks. And I think another important thing as a first time elk hunter is to have realistic expectations. So, you know, depending on if you're backcountry hunting or, you know, what you're doing, um, 
I hear it all the time from new hunters. You know, four of us are heading out west and we're going 10 miles in and we're hunting for nine days and we're going to kill four bulls all over 340. Best of luck. Reality of that happening is extremely thin. Also, too, I hear a lot of new first-time hunters say, I'm going to go out and kill a 350 or I'm going to go out and kill a 360. Probably not, because if you've never elk hunted before, the first time that animal comes in, you are probably going to be peeing down your leg. And the ability to control your emotions and execute the shot and do everything that you need to to harvest that animal um, just isn't there because you haven't experienced it before. So don't go out with these lofty, huge expectations on your first trip out. Put an elk on the ground, whether it's a spike or a cow or a raghorn or whatever, but experience what that's like. Experience putting an arrow through. Experience the blood trail. Experience how that animal is going to react once the arrow zips through him. And experience all those things. So again, that's all part of that learning experience and understanding what it takes to really be a successful archery elk hunter. So... Uh, one of my favorite parts of the mountains is not having cell service and getting back to the roots of life. Walla Andrew, absolutely. So I, I've heard from a lot of people lately that they're like, man, I'm frustrated. I need to find a new hunting partner. All my guy wants to do is go search for cell service and then sit on his phone. A lot of times those are the guys or, or those are the people that are hunting for likes because they have to find that cell service to post the selfie or post the status or this or that. And it's, it's yeah, it is frustrating. Um, yeah, we we like the same thing. Get away. I mean, that's, that's part of it. Getting away, escaping to nature, recharging the batteries. Um, yeah, the cell phone, I, I mean, yeah, we'll still have them on airplane mode just because so we can use, you know, our Onyx mapping system. So uh, do you recommend breathing exercises for building up your bugle? Um, you know, it's it's not really exercises or breathing exercises. It's, it's really taking, uh, you know, deep breaths and, and work on, you know, holding those breaths and trying to take deeper breaths. And as you're bugling and practicing, just trying to stretch and hold that bugle out. Uh, you know, you can actually do things to increase your lung capacity a little bit. But the other thing, too, is if you're doing a bugle, OK, if you have in your mind that, you know, you want to do a three note bugle with some chuckles at the end. You know, practice those. Know how much lung power you have. Know how long you can hold those three notes. But always leave yourself enough air to do the end of the bugle that you want. So if it's a location bugle, you know, to do come off, come off the top of the hill, come down the hill and drag that out. Or maybe you come off the hill, come down and then go back up. Whatever you're doing. And everybody's a little bit different on how long they're going to be able to hold those. But always leave enough air in your lungs that you can finish off your bugle. Chuckles, I mean, basically chuckles, you're sucking air back in as you're doing chuckles. So that kind of helps a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, Mr. Mr. Lawson, it just basically comes from practice and knowing your lung capacity 
for what you're wanting to do. So uh, I think there's the number one thing to understand about bow hunting elk, more important to calling and not just wind goes up in the afternoon and down in the evening, even just some shade or a draw with creek changes and thermals. Yeah, I mean, you could be on the hot side of the mountain and as soon as you roll around to the, the cool side, which is that north, northeastern side, those temps could drop 10 to 15 degrees and that wind could be doing something completely different. So understanding how the temperatures, and that's why I say understanding the thermals and what they're gonna do in regards to those different temperatures. And also too, what are they gonna do on benches? You know, a lot of times you get on those benches with you know a little bit of a rock face or this or that, and you just get into a swirly wind mode. Um, and those are those are just things that you know you just have to get out there and experience and that's where during the summertime when you're out doing your summer or your scouting and you're hiking around pay attention to what those thermals are doing throughout the different parts of the day as the temperatures change and also where you're at on the mountain so uh pay attention to those things so uh thermals don't know why autocorrect change it to theirs oh <laughs> um I remember when I first started elk hunting, the best advice I was given was shoot the first legal bull or cow you see. They may be the only ones you ever see on your hunt. Absolutely. Um, and, and plus two, you know, once you have that experience and you've been into it a little bit, then you can start going, okay, I'm going to go out this year and I'm not going to shoot anything smaller than a five point or I'm not going to shoot anything than a six point. That you can most certainly do because you've had the experience. You've taken a legal bull or a cow and you've, you, you know, you've had those experiences. Um, because the thing is, is once you've had those experiences and then you start, you know, setting those goals for yourself of what you want to accomplish during that season, you're going to find that your ability to control your nerves and your ability to do everything is a lot easier um, it's, it's, it almost becomes, okay, I've been here before. I know what to expect. And also too, is especially if you've taken, you know, a couple of elk, depending on how they were standing. And, um, you know, that's, that's always one thing that I do when I get up to a downed elk is the first thing I want to do is I want to roll that elk and I want to look at the entrance hole and I want to look at the exit hole. And then also too, when we're breaking that elk down, I'm constantly looking at, okay, what did the arrow do at this angle? Um, you know, did it tick off of a rib? Which way did it go? How, you know, I always am trying to study and learn in that efficiency uh, to know that because then you recognize those angles and you know, OK, I've been here before. I know what's going to happen with, you know, this arrow and I know what it's going to do. And you also start to to kind of start narrowing down and focusing on smaller spots uh, because you have done it. And you know how that anatomy is. and You know how it sits in the rib cage and you know how that leg bone coat comes up. And these are all part that you really can't experience it until you've got an animal on the ground and check those things out and break it down and just study it. It's almost like you're in, in biology class again, where you're dissecting, but you're almost studying where everything's at and what happened. So, uh, so your homework on the area you were hunting, uh, but don't become tunnel vision by punching the tag. So, yeah. So, 
wind changes all the time in the coastal ranges, you know, and that's the thing too, is, you know, that wind's going to change too, whether, you know, it could be a bright sunny day, but all of a sudden some clouds come in and cover that sun and it changes the temperature. I mean, even that little bit of change can affect the wind. And, and these are the things that if you've never really paid attention to it, you're not going to recognize it. So, um, have lots to do for tomorrow. Snuck on here. Shh, don't tell the wife. Now your secret's safe with me, but I won't. I won't say a word. So, elk hunting is truly a totally different hunt from any other animal. I have learned so much just sitting in the woods and walking in the mountains. Fantastic friends I have met along the way make it all worthwhile. I have had missed opportunities and missed animals, but always have an amazing time. See, Chris, that's that's the great approach there. Um, you know, you're not so focused on that punched tag that, you know, you are taking the time to experience, you know, everything around you. So, uh, success of an elk hunt is not about filling your tag. I don't eat horns. I like it guys. Uh, if I was a new hunter and couldn't afford a tag and didn't draw, I would pay to be someone's caller or cameraman. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too. If, if you've got, um, if you don't have a tag, but some of your buddies do go get that experience. So, and, and even too, even if you have hunted elk for a few years, it just, I, I don't know, for me, it gets in a blood. If, if I wasn't able to have a tag and I knew some friends of mine did, man, I would be there in a heartbeat just to experience and be a part of it and, uh, be out there with them. So, um, I think your journal suggestion is a good one for new elk hunters. I did one last year. Perfect. So, and those of you that, that may not have heard that before. So one thing that I did when I first started hunting elk was I took a spiral ring notebook to camp with me and just started keeping a journal, uh, you, you know, would write the date. And then I would write everything about that day, what the temperature was, what the weather was, what elk behavior I saw, uh, what what vocalizations I heard, what I did, how they responded to what I did. And, it, and I did that each day at the end of the day. You know, when I got back to camp and I'm eating dinner and, um, you know, spiral ring notebook, it doesn't take up much room. It's, it's hardly any weight at all. Um, but the benefits that you get from that are huge because it's something that you can go back and watch over or, or, or read over and over and over again. And the cool thing is, is each time you read it, you just relive that day. You relive those encounters. Now, yeah, there are going to be some days that, you know, there's not going to be a ton that you're going to put into the journal because there wasn't a ton of activity. But still having something that you can go back and read over and over and over again you just basically um, use those as learning experiences just because, like I said, you get to replay them in your mind over and over again. So uh, I met my hunting partners from hunting the same grounds for years, competing against each other, and now we camp together and have shared hunting spots. Same same here. It, it actually is a great way. And, and really, that's one of the things where I've talked about in the past. Don't be afraid to talk to people that are hunting the same areas that you are. Um, because one, you can learn maybe some hidden pockets that you didn't know about, but also two, you guys can then work together and it's a lot more effective if you're working together than if you're working against each other. So 
Uh, Idaho mountains are the only place I can be totally free from work in the rest of the world. I love my yearly visits to God country, Chris, as, as do we all. So, uh, Jonathan Rush, aside from boots on the ground, do you have a good resource to learn about thermals? You know, the internet, the internet is a great resource. Uh, you know, you could, you could certainly type it into YouTube. You can certainly type it into Google. You can just basically sit there and type in mountain thermals or mountain wind currents, you know, a lot of different phrases, uh, but there's a pile of information out there. If you're just willing to take the time and use those resources. So, and take all of that tiny T photo. How you doing brother? Uh, Judy, thanks for all the great advice. I will certainly take a notebook. You bet. Um, and Judy, the cool thing is, is, is with those notebooks, as the years kind of, kind of tick along, you can certainly go back and read those notebooks and those journals. And, and it's so cool. I mean, cause you can go, you know, find one from 10 years ago. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll dig through old photos sometimes. And even looking at those photos, it just, the memories and stuff. It's just so cool to go back and, and read those. So, uh, I can quarter a deer and get all the meat off in 20 minutes by myself. My first elk took two hours. Their size is not to be underestimated. No, it is a process to break down an elk and I can guarantee your legs are going to get tired. Your back's going to get tight. Your shoulders are going to get sore. Um, all of it. And, and, and it, it, it never, well, I shouldn't say it never fails, but a majority of the time you'll be in the middle of packing that elk off the mountain and you're just going to be wore out, exhausted, and you're just going to think, God, this is the worst situation I've ever been into in the world. But it's amazing as soon as you make it back to the truck or make it back to your camp and, and, and you take that heavy pack off your shoulders and you sit down for a minute and you kind of regroup. And it, it, it happens every time. Um, you all of a sudden start thinking, man, you know, that, that really wasn't that bad. But in the middle of it, you're sitting there thinking, okay, you know, if we come back in this spot again, you know, this or that, you, you know, it has to be a certain size bull or, you know, you're not going to shoot a cow back in this area. And, but I can guarantee it as soon as you get back to the truck or get back to camp and you get that pack off your shoulders and you just sit down and regroup for a minute. It's amazing how all of a sudden you will sit there and go, man, that really wasn't that bad. I would definitely go do that again. I'd go do it again tomorrow. So, uh, let's see. Uh, wouldn't get to hunt with Jack Keithley if I hunted in Oregon. Great friend. Okay. Some of you guys are having conversations. Um, Nick Stevens, not sure if it's me, but I can't hear you very well. Yeah. People have been talking about the, the volume. I mean, they've been having issues all day. So, uh, if you think about how hard it will be, you never will do it. Um, I don't know. We've we've always been that type that that yeah, we don't we don't 
hear a bull bugle in the bottom of the canyon, we don't sit up there and calculate how hard it's going to be to get that out. Um, we've been foolish in the past where we've sat there and went, oh, there's a bull bugling in the bottom of the canyon. Let's go. We'll figure out how to get him out once he's on the ground. So our first objective is get him on the ground. Then we'll figure out how to get out. And there's been times that we've dropped into the bottom of that canyon, got him down on the ground. And then we started studying maps and go, holy cow, here's an old road system. And it really wasn't that bad where there are individuals that are out there that will stay up on top of that ridge and go, oh, I ain't going down there. Um, no. We'll, we'll go find an elk in a more convenient place. And a lot of times those are the ones that don't have that um, punch tag year after year after year or the ones that, um, I, I mean, I know a lot of things, you know, factor into it. Um, I, I know a couple of guys that, man, they've, they've been hunting elk 20 years, 25 years and have never gotten an elk. So, um, but if you talk to those guys, they'll also tell you, um, you know, we, we love our time out there. Every time it's a learning experience and we're learning more and more and more. Um, but they're not really the ones that are diving off into those holes. So, uh, to, 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 is a sweet, satisfying, Oh, it is a sweet, satisfying pain, though. When can we do it again? Absolutely. So you got to go where they are. Sitting in the woods and calling a bull in is my favorite thing. It's it's so cool. So. All right. We have about 10 minutes left. So last round of questions. Um, hunting solo, the ability to get meat out before it spoils is a serious ethical consideration. It is. And even if you're not hunting solo, um, maybe you only have one other person with you. And, and, and those are always calculations that you have to do. Um, you know, can we, you know, get this out in time? And are we going to, you know, is there a chance of spoiling and, and this and that, especially early in the year? Um, but yeah, those those are all calculations that you have to do especially as a solo person and really with backcountry hunting becoming more and more and more and more popular with more and more people doing it. Um, I really, Scott, you're, you're dead on. I, th I think there's a lot of individuals that, you know, focus on preparing for the hunt and focus on getting back there, but they don't think about what are they going to do if they're successful? You know, what are they going to do? when they get something on the ground. And those that's all part of preparing for that hunt. You know, knowing what you're going to do, what's your plan as soon as you get something down, how are you going to handle it? How are you going to get it off the mountain? Where are you going to take it? Um, I think last year, you know, we talked about um, for a lot of guys that were going out of state, um, you know, calling around to the closest town to where they're hunting and see if there's any meat lockers that, you know, they can hang in. These are all parts of, of, of preparing for that hunt. I mean, you're doing everything to prepare to get back in there and shoot efficiently and call efficiently, but you haven't thought one bit about what you're going to do once you get something on the ground. So are you really having a complete plan on what you're going to do? So it's all those pieces tied together. So 
Bill, one of the hardest thing I've done is breaking that bull down and carrying him out alone. I'm ready to do that again. Makes it a lot easier to uh, to stick to a good hit workout program. Absolutely. Um, but honestly, if you could be the, in, in the best shape, and, and if you don't have a plan for how to take care of that meat or what you're going to do based on the temperatures, um, sometimes it's it's uh, too late by the time you're out there. You've kind of gone past that. Uh, point of no return and it could be pretty pretty tough so and yeah bill i know you worked your butt off to get that bull off the mountain and competed with uh, some cows and some other critters out there so uh what do you do in early season as far as them not calling and doing a cold call sequence so cody the one thing that we do and the one thing that we really teach in elk calling academy and we have this um, over in the elkcallingacademy.com instructional videos is uh, our big thing is breeding sequence. Um, you know, that early time of year, you can create excitement. You can take, you know, quiet bulls and you start doing that breeding sequence and you do it the right way. You can take that from a quiet area to all of a sudden bulls bugling and responding and being pretty dang vocal um, you know, we've, we've done it year after year on opening weekend. And so if you want to know more about the breeding sequence and those instructional videos, uh, elkcallingacademy.com, it is our Patreon page. Uh, it is $15 a month. Um, there's all kinds of instructional videos on there on all the different elk sounds, uh, what they mean, how to do them, when to use them during the time of the years, the breeding sequence, midday calling sequence, what to do pre-rut, peak rut, post rut. We also have e-scouting tutorials and tools that we use for finding, uh, you know, elk areas that we want to hunt in. Um, and in fact, we have a new video that's dropping this Friday in there, a new instructional video. So, which is actually, I'm doing a mock setup out in the field. So you'll see exactly why I set up where I do, why, you know, how, uh, what my plan is to draw and then what I'm going to do uh, in my calling sequence, but also to how I'm going to respond to different bugles that I get back. So, uh, heading up scouting next weekend, we'll be out six weeks before opening day too early or a good thing. Uh, no, anytime Aaron out scouting is, is a really, really good time. Um, you know, typically, uh, you know, this time of year, I've already had cameras out for a couple of weeks, and then I'm spending a good majority of July and August just on higher elevation, higher peaks and sitting behind the glass. I'm not doing a ton of hiking in the area, especially as we get closer to season. Uh, I'm going to work on those higher elevations, those vantage points where I can glass and watch the elk move through the timber and you know that's a really good way to learn where they're coming out of in the evening and going to feed and also where they're going in the morning to bed and you can learn a whole lot about an area just from sitting behind the glass now obviously i'm going to glass those areas but I've already been out and I've walked those areas. I found the elk sign. I found the old rutting sign. I know this is an area that I definitely want to hunt. And then that's when I'm really going to spend the time on the glass throughout the summer. Because once season starts, I don't spend a whole lot of time behind the binos um, because I'm there in the timber and where I hunt is usually a little thicker um, to uh, 
sit there and glass. So uh, can you still call in a bull during an early October rifle hunt? Absolutely. Um, you know, and again, depending on, you know, what the red activity was like in September, um, you'll know, especially in those early October rifle hunts, you know, cow sounds can be highly, highly effective. Um, but also, too, if it's a later rut year, there's still some really good bugling activity going on in those early October rifle hunts. And you can still get some good heavy uh, bugle activity and good encounters in. So uh, what are your best suggestions about where to put game cameras? <coughs> so, you know, Michael, there's a lot of different options. So I'll put cameras on wallows. Um, and a lot of times if I put a camera on a wallow, I typically have that one on video mode. Um, but you know, travel corridors, a lot of times game trails, uh, you know, put cameras on there, uh, because those, those trails, they're, they're generally going to give you an established direction of travel and also established time, whether it's morning or evening, and then you can kind of start clicking off all that information that you want to gather about the area, you know, where they bed, where they feed, what travel corridors they use in the morning, what travel corridors they use in the evening. Uh, you know, game cameras are great for gathering that type of information. So Corey Christman, I am doing well. How are you doing, bud? So um, I've had to cover my bull with fur boughs two feet deep to keep blowflies off till you got it done. Yeah, there are some years where the flies and the bees, it's its almost, they're taking meat off the bull just as fast as you are. So, um, yeah, some years seem a lot worse. I know I was, I, I made a quick dash up this past weekend and uh, good Lord, the mosquitoes were horrible. Um, but, you know, we still have snow up in some of the higher country still. And so, um where I was, where I headed to, I thought I would be okay. Um, but man, it was outrageous. In fact, I'm heading up there again tomorrow morning and I think I'm going to, uh, take up a Costco size can of off and I'm going to pull the pin and let that thing blow off like a grenade and get rid of all those. So, uh, Corey, are you going to be at the world's, uh, Corey, no, I'm going to miss it this year. Um, some things had come up and I'm just not going to make it. So, uh, what under quilt do you, are you currently running for your hammock? So Nacho, I don't actually run, uh, uh, under quilt. The under quilt I have is actually from 6am outdoors, uh, via outdoors. Uh, they've got some great under quilts, but I actually run a, um, a climate insulated pad under or in my, in my hammock with my, uh, zero degree sleeping bag. So, all right, guys, countdown has started. We're about a minute and a half. So I appreciate each and every one of you tuning in tonight. Hopefully you've kind of found some tidbits tonight that uh, will kind of help you this season is always appreciate all of you tuning in without you guys. I wouldn't be able to do this. Have a safe and happy 4th of July and take a moment to thank those that continually defend the freedoms that we get to enjoy and, you know, just thank them for their constant sacrifices. So have a great 4th of July, everybody. As always, keep calling, keep practicing. Most importantly, though, have fun. And we'll see you guys next week on the next episode of Wapiti Wednesday Q&A brought to you by Help Calling Academy. Have a great week, everybody. 
Follow and subscribe to Elk Calling Academy on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Patreon for tips, tactics, gear reviews, and live Q&A, helping you to success faster. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.